This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. The internet and the explosion of free political content that it created has had a dramatic effect on the media industry as previously profitable newspapers and magazines have slashed the budget in the hopes of surviving in the marketplace while also being eaten alive by hedge funds that have become notorious for carving up publications and selling off the parts. One sector of journalism that's been particularly harmed in recent years is editorial cartooning. Not even 10 years ago, most major city daily newspapers employed artists to draw their takes on the news of the day. Now, however, the ranks of editorial cartoonists have shrunk drastically. That's more than a little bit ironic, however, because we live during a time when the visual image has never been more important in American culture, thanks to the popularity of memes, those images with funny and often political messages that even your grandparents know about. That's why several of America's top editorial cartoonists have joined together to form their own media outlet called Counterpoint.com. It's dedicated solely to gathering high-quality artists from both sides of the political spectrum and presenting their work to the public. In this episode, I'm joined by Nick Anderson, one of CounterPoint's co-founders who formerly worked at the Houston Chronicle. I'm also joined by Nate Beeler, a veteran cartoonist who draws at CounterPoint after previously working at the Columbus Dispatch. In our conversation, we talk about CounterPoint, the news industry, and cartooning during the age of the meme. We also discuss why artists expressing their opinions seem to face more anger from political opponents than people who write or speak their opinions. Nick, why don't we first start off with sort of the general trend. How many newspapers currently have editorial cartoonists on staff, and where was it formerly? I would, I, I'm guessing around 25, Nate. You, do, do you have a more firm number? That sounds about right. Yeah, we're down from, like, when I started this in 1991, we, there were probably 180 editorial cartoonists on staff, so you can see what's happened. Yeah. So, Nate, you were one of those rarer numbers as a staff cartoonist at the Columbus Dispatch for a while. What happened? Were you among many of the print casualties that happened over there? Or what was, tell us a little bit about how long you were at the Columbus Dispatch and then what you were doing before that and maybe what you're, what you see as the prospects of the industry. Sure. Yeah. I was laid off in May of uh, this year. A wave of layoffs across the Gatehouse company. There were other cartoonists who were swept up in this. Rick McKee was one. I believe Mark Streeter was another. I can't remember offhand if there were more than that, but there were other people whose jobs were eliminated at the dispatch as well. So it wasn't, they weren't just targeting editorial cartoonists, but at the same time, there are now no longer any editorial cartoonists working for gatehouse newspapers and and how many newspapers do they own oh gosh i i, I don't recall offhand but you know hundreds and now that their gatehouse gannett merger has been approved i don't know if there are any gannett cartoonists out there except for maybe mike thompson who's at usa today now i uh, know he's in detroit and so i I don't know what the future is in that respect now, but Gatehouse getting rid of all their editorial cartoonists was certainly troubling for the industry. 
And I had been there for at the Columbus Dispatch for seven years, having come back home to Columbus after spending about seven and a half years at the Washington Examiner in D.C. as their coaching. Yeah. So, Nick, why have artists been included among these layoffs to such a degree? Or even more, well, I think I, they're, they're laid off even more so than reporters, it's, it would seem. Exactly. Even more so than reporters and newspapers are left with, instead of having one cartoonist, zero, which tells you a lot about how their priorities have shifted. And I think part of it is their writers. One a cartoonist I know calls it a newspaper is a writer's cult. So we've always been sort of add ons, and it's not that we didn't feel valued. We did, but I think when they're looking, when they're under pressure and looking for things to cut, they start looking at the people who aren't writers. Sometimes it's photographers, and all too often it's editorial cartoonists, and they think they can take the easy way out and use syndicated material. In that case, it also saves trouble from readers because if there's an editorial cartoon that is uh, troublesome or too provocative, they just don't have to run it. Whereas if it's the staff cartoonist, you get into an argument about whether or not something should be run or not. So I think they're making a, a miscalculation. Yeah, without a doubt. But I don't think we can talk about this without really bringing up Counterpoint, which we touched on briefly. Yeah. Uh, Counterpoint is a, uh, other than, basically before this came along, it was looking pretty grim for editorial cartoonists. Um, when Rob Rod got fired uh, for drawing Trump cartoons at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I wrote a column that landed in CNN.com and uh, about the state of editorial cartooning and how bad it is, you know, things we've already covered. And um, a venture capitalist saw it, contacted me and said, hey, why don't, why don't we do something about this? And that was a year and a half ago. But what uh, we went through a few iterations of ideas, and what we ended up with was just kind of an experiment. Um, we decided to start an email newsletter, and the, the uh, we wanted to have um, all perspectives represented, left and right, and you know in between. So that's how the name Counterpoint uh, came up, and it was really he didn't want to. The, his, the venture capitalist name is Vivek Garapali, and he's a, he reads everything from left to right, and that's why he wanted he really wanted to have all sides represented. But um, he really wanted to kind of just test the market and see how much interest there is in this. And so this is an effort to decouple our fates from newspapers and to not have editors breathing down our necks. So we can pretty much do whatever we want. There's no editors except we kind of keep each other in check to make sure we don't do something stupid. Um, and just it, it tells you how big a mistake that newspapers are making, how successful this newsletter is becoming. Um, in June, we had 1,000 subscribers, and today we have 180,000 subscribers. It's growing five to 10,000 subscribers a week. It's growing like wildfire, and we expect to be over 200,000 by the end of the year. And that just shows you how much interest there is in what we do and um, how, especially if we're pushing the envelopes with real commentary and not pulling our punches, people want to see that. And newspapers are making a mistake keeping it out of the newspaper. Yeah, now, well, speaking to the idea of controversy, you still see some controversies periodic. The New York Times, as I recall, is probably the most recent one. Can you guys maybe talk a little bit about that episode, if you, re if you remember it? 
Yeah, that wasn't even somebody who worked for the New York Times. It was a syndicated piece that that some editor ran. And what we're talking about is uh, there was an uproar over a cartoon of Netanyahu as a dog, as a seeing-eye dog for for Trump. And people went crazy about it and said, this is anti-Semitic drawing Jewish person as as a dog. And there was so much um, controversy and, and blowback that in the end, they said they would stop using cartoons altogether, stop using any from this syndicate, and then soon after... After they fired Patrick Chapat, who had nothing to do with this, but they got rid of him as well. So it seemed like an incredible overreaction. And what about you, Nate? What's your take? As a political cartoonist, I, I think you have to have a pretty thick skin. And also, you you think in extremes. And so sometimes you can be blind to the things that would be make other people uncomfortable. And using anti-Semitic tropes right now in light of stuff that's gone on with Representative Omar and so forth, sensitivity was heightened. And I think that it's always dangerous when you start using tropes, especially ones that have a long history of being really disgusting. And in this case, it was, I think, an unfortunate use of that trope. I don't think that the person was necessarily anti-Semitic, but given the context of the politics, it was probably a long time to use that image. However, that's an image that the editor could have rejected before publication, and they had every right to reject it because they were paying for it. And the cartoonist was the one, two cartoonists, that cartoonist who had done the cartoon, and then Patrick Chapin afterwards, paid the price for the editor's own mistake. And mm. the editor is probably still working there. So, I mean, I didn't see the cartoon when it was first printed. I understand why people were upset over it. And as a cartoonist, I, I wouldn't have drawn that image myself because I don't, I don't like to get into those waters to begin with. It's better to use imagery that is a little more closer to the situation, first of all. And it also helps you avoid stereotypes that have ugly histories. Uh huh. The cartoonist in question was actually is actually Norwegian. Have you guys followed where he is at, or if he had any issues in Norway? I have not heard anything since. And the one thing that I was curious about was whether or not he had a history of anti-Semitic images, and and he really didn't. I I don't think that the intention was anti-Semitic. Like Nate said, it's it's kind of an old trope. Seeing I've drawn Trump as a seeing eye dog for Putin. Not we we use these images pretty regularly, but you do have to be conscious of the. History history of images and how they've been used against some groups more than others. And I think the cartoonist just did this because it fit, not because he was trying to be anti-Semitic. But that's where an editor or other eyes on it can, can help you avoid a train wreck like that. But I don't think it was intentional. Uh-huh. Right. And as an editorial cartoonist, you, know, you, you always have to take context into account. You can't necessarily throw every single stereotypical image out the door, though, and there are times when you can use it. But I always go back to when I was in college and drawing cartoons for my college newspaper. I was told right off the bat that I couldn't draw any cartoons with monkeys or gorillas in them because <laughs> all of that imagery was just taken away from me. And it was because there was a cartoon in the student newspaper a few years before I came to it that involved a monkey and it was taken the wrong way, and they accused the newspaper of being racist. So, you know, there are plenty of times where I could draw a monkey and have it not be racist, you know, and, I, and I, I've done so professionally. For the examiner, I, I can recall a specific uh, cartoon where I drew the national debt as a big gorilla, you know, 800-pound gorilla. 
but I couldn't have drawn that cartoon for my student newspaper in college because of the context. So you always have to weigh the context and whether to go with an image that is potentially potentially a landmark. Is there a pressure on cartoonists to be as inoffensive as possible? There's certain artists who I won't necessarily name, but it seems to me that they're trying to be almost generic. People of any political persuasion would would say, "Oh yeah, haha, that's slightly amusing." But otherwise, they they don't they don't really do a lot. And I think it seems like that's a a pressure that is is within the industry, but you guys are in it, so you tell me. The answer is yes, and in, in, in newspapers, they definitely want cartoons that are as inoffensive as possible. And at my old newspaper, the Dispatch, you know, they would go out of their way to put cartoons in that were more jokes than editorial statements. They would shy away from editorial statements uh, at times, and it was. It was difficult to watch as a cartoonist because your job is to make an editorial statement. You are an editorial cartoonist. So that opinion is at the core of your your title. And it's the first word in the title. And newspapers are just under a lot of pressure to not piss off readers. And it, it's not necessarily pressure from the readers, I think. I think it's internal pressure and pressure from the bean counters, if you will. Uh huh. Well, and uh, have you guys had responses from from readers? I, I imagine you you've had some responses from them, as in terms of what they think and their appreciation. Yes, positive and negative. In fact, we recently, um, one of our cartoonists used the the basket of deplorables reference from Hillary and drew the black ba- Trump's basket of deplorables, and there was a Nazi symbol in there. And one of our cartoonists had several comments on Facebook complaining about Counterpoint, how this really should be out of bounds and we shouldn't be letting these kind of cartoons into Counterpoint and Nate, in fact, Nate, who's one of our cartoonists, we're lucky to have him. Had, they brought up his name and because he had used the jackboot for, as a metaphor for Trumpism, and they were just mortified by this imagery. And, and you know, I chimed in. You know, Rick, who's a conservative, said, "Look, we can draw whatever we want, and that's the way we like it. This is the way it should work. We shouldn't have an editor saying no." you can't do that because that's going to end up working both ways. And that really is what I think is, it's going to make people uncomfortable, but that's a good thing. As long as it's not something that traffics in just blatantly racist stereotype. But I think using Nazi imagery is fair play. And I think conservatives call liberals communists. I also think that's fair play. And I think it's pretty equivalent. Mm-hmm. So Nate, yeah, I think, in addition to the general industry trends, you have you you came out of a conservative background and have been a continued to be a, a Donald Trump critic long after most people who claimed they were never Trump, well, they actually decided they were in favor of Trump. <laughs> so has that how has that experience been like for you as a as a cartoonist? And I mean, has have, have any other people, let's say writers or or cartoonists had some similar experiences to you. But first, talk about yourself. Well, it's been weird since 2015. I remember way back when I was in the Examiner, this was maybe around 2010 or 2011, Donald Trump had a little trial balloon that he would possibly throw his name in the running for a run against Obama. And that was when I drew my first Trump cartoon. And it just seemed ridiculous on its face for him to be a candidate. And so I, I came into his candidacy in 2016 with a whole bunch of skepticism. And uh, the way that he comported himself on the campaign trail just did everything to cement that opinion. 
that he's dangerous and he's not conservative, first of all. And I, I've always been one to, I've always been attracted to people who are, uh, this, this will, uh, you know, trigger some people who are uniters and not dividers. So I, I, I like a president to be presidential and to have a sense of fairness to him and compassion. And so I, I just didn't like him from the beginning. And it went along. It just got worse and worse. And I remember I was drawing these cartoons during the primaries about Trump and another cartoonist, C. Sack, um, sent me an uh, email about one of my cartoons saying that he liked it. And he said, so how long before you're going to pivot to supporting him when, if he wins the nomination? And he was saying it, you know, wryly, you know, as Steve does. But uh, I, I responded to him and I said, listen, you know, I'm, if he wins the nomination, it's not going to change my view of him. You know, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an editorial cartoonist. And, you know, I have, you know, core values that are conservative in some ways, liberals, liberal in others. But I, I'm, I'm not going to change who I am just because he gets a, the Republican nomination. And so when, when he got it and I was still drawing cartoons critical of Trump, there were a whole bunch of people that jumped on me, readers who jumped on me and, and accusing me of being a liberal and, you know, Obama lover and all that. And this yeah, is I when you were at, this is when you were at the dispatch. right? Exactly. Yes. And this is 2016 and beyond. They would say, oh, you probably loved Obama and all that. I would always say, hey, go look at my Obama cartoons and send them links to those because it's our job as editorial cartoonists to see a check on power. And guess what? The most powerful person in the world is the commander in chief of the United States. Yeah. Well, and I think, and this is something that I have heard from some other people who had worked in conservative oriented media that it's their opinion that there is a lot more pressure for, to have conformity among conservative outlets and as a result a, a lot of these people had decided they they couldn't take it anymore and they and they went mainstream what do you think of that of that assessment i think that there probably is a whole lot of pressure pressure to conform in washington dc itself because washington is very tribal. And I think if you get into the Midwest, it's a lot less tribal. You have a lot a lot of the gray in the middle. If you're in Washington, you have to go to the extreme to be able to be heard. And that just, I don't think it plays well for the majority of the people in the United States. It just shows that our politics are being run by and supported by, I think, fewer and fewer people going forward. Maybe the numbers don't back me up on that, but it just seems like the extremes having the power points to a, a more troubling trend, because I don't think that the majority of people in the United States are on these extremes. And in terms of people having to conform and then leaving and joining mainstream, you know what? Who cares where you go? If, they, if, you, are, if you believe one thing, let's say you are for uh, path, to, uh, path to legalization or whatever for immigrants or something like that, if you're for that, fundamentally, you, that shouldn't, you shouldn't change your view just because somebody gets to be president who doesn't share your view. So I, I, I don't like hypocrisy. That's one of the things that people like Nick and I are supposed to call out. Mm -hmm. Well, and Nick, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe one of the things you're trying to do is to try to end some of that siloing with, with, with your project. Is that right? Yeah, and, and it, it's one of the 
One of the internal debates that we had with the co-founders was we were getting a little bit of blowback from readers because conservatives like Nate and Scott Stannis were a little bit more independent-minded about Trump and were critical of him. And then like Mike Lester is, is far more in the Trump camp and is a big supporter, which is fine. But, but we were not having perfect balance in every issue. And so the co-founders were like, well, what what are we going to do? And I said, I, we're going to do nothing. We're going to, I don't want this to turn into the CNN's crossfire, which was a dreadful show where you knew what everyone was going to say ahead of time because everyone was taking their prescribed positions. I want Counterpoint to be a place where people can think freely and express freely. And like Nate said, Trumpism is not conservatism. And criticizing Trump from a conservative point of view is very valid and should be represented. And we're never going to move as a country if everyone just stays in their lane and isn't free to think think freely. So I was adamant that we just not fall into that same, I think, siloing and that is very, very much contaminating our our body, our body politics. And I, I just want us to be something different, dynamic, where you're not going to see three cartoons from the left and three from the right. You'll see three from liberals and three from conservatives, but you're not going to know what they have to say. They may have something, they may surprise you, and I think that's a good thing. Uh-huh. Well, and it's such a fascinating idea, this pressure on cartoonists, because I do think it's unique compared to pressure on columnists. Like, I mean, there might be some instances here and there where people might not like a, a particular column or, or whatnot, but in general, you don't see people who are writing political columns trying to make them as anodyne as possible um i mm. i just don't see that and i mean tell me if i'm wrong i think you're absolutely right and i don't know why there's extra pressure on cartoonists but well they i do make people I, mad. The, go ahead Nate. yeah the, re, the well the reason why is because there's so much power in an image that is imparted so quickly you can have a fiery column something that is really controversial and pointed but you have to make your way through the column. And so the emotion of that builds up for the most part, uh, in most cases. And for an editorial cartoon, it is in your face. And this hard opinion or um, uncomfortable truth that this cartoonist might get to is right there and is absorbed within five seconds, just, just looking at the pictures. Yeah, and so-and-so so is an arrogant than, asshole. <laughs> you can right. get that message yeah. immediately the, exactly. or whatever. Just from the way that they're drawn. Yep. And, and it's the power of images. And this is what's so amazing to me about newspapers and the layoffs and so forth. You know, Nick mentioned photographers getting laid off. Yeah. Are the illustration staffs at newspapers, photographers, editorial cartoonists, all of these people, you know, designers and so forth, all these people are image-based people and newspapers are doing away with them. Well, <laughs> Look at what the technology is bringing to us nowadays with the web and social media. It's it's all tailored to images. Yeah, the, it's, it's images exploit. They exploit images the best. Mm-hmm. The, the counter. The other found, co-founders of Counterpoint are Silicon Valley mindset, and they've asked me why are newspapers getting rid of something that caters to the visual and the short attention span of modern America? Why, and I can't answer that, but it is it makes no sense, but it's giving us a huge opportunity. Yeah, well, I if I had to theorize on why they're doing it, it's that the people who are ascending to the executive level 
the C-suite in the newspaper industry are, they are individuals who are not good at building things. They, all they are good at is cutting costs and destroying things. Um, so in the case of, um, so I actually used to work at the examiner as well. And in my experience, the, the guy who was the head of the company, he literally had that job because he had destroyed the Rocky Mountain News and had had done it by cutting the Denver Post to the bone and then as a result drove them out of business. And he just didn't have a lot of, of integrity or interest in journalism from what I saw. But I don't, I don't want to open a can of worms for you there, Nate. <laughs> but yeah, so now in terms of... In terms of counterpoint, Nick, tell the the listeners here. Do you guys have any? What are your other plans, or have you finalized any yet? We are constantly reevaluating. We are published twice a week right now, Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's free. We intend to keep it free. We are currently looking for sponsorship. At the rate we're growing, we no longer talk about whether or not Counterpoint is going to succeed. We talk about it just succeeding. We hope to be published daily in 2020. That's looking pretty realistic right now, especially it's great timing with the 2020 election coming up. So we are bringing in some staffers to handle some writing and to handle management and in advertising. And we've got some advertisers right now interested. They're mostly recent startups, Silicon Valley startup types. So things are looking very, very good. And what also makes us different is that we pay for original work. We are not a syndicate. We pay cartoonists to do cartoons for CounterPoint 12 a week. Each cartoonist does one for a Tuesday or Thursday. And so they have to, they meet a deadline, they get their work in, we pay them pretty well given the current market, and we'd like to even increase that. Whereas syndication rates are terrible, but we didn't want to just use syndicated material because it's recycled. It's, you can find it everywhere else, but this is different in that you can only see these cartoons in CounterPoint, at least for the first 24 hours, and it gives cartoonists a possible new business model to survive professionally, especially as, as we move into uh, publishing daily. Uh-huh. I, have you guys thought about doing things like web widgets or something so that people could put the cartoons on their websites? That's pretty far down the line. We want to grow. Right now, the, the, the newsletter business model is looking really good. We kind of stumbled into this, but we've discovered that the newsletter business model is actually a really hot right now. So we are focusing on that for the moment. As we mature, I think we'll start looking for other ways we can we can leverage the asset further down the line. Okay. And so Nate, you are affiliated with Counterpoint, but also you are working with Kegel Cartoons. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I've been syndicated with Kegel Cartoons since I think 2006 or seven, back when I was at the Examiner. And it's just a, a longstanding relationship with Kegel Cartoons for my own newspaper, the Examiner, and then for the Dispatch, and they would, I would then give those cartoons to my syndicate to send out or to make available to other newspapers and, and who are subscribers. And that works the same now with Counterpoint. And I'm sure the Nick's setup with Washington Post Writers Group is not the same. You know, his home newspaper is probably Counterpoint now. Is mm-hmm. that is that right, Nick? Yeah, I would say. And, yeah, so that's the way that I look at it. Home, the counterpoint's the new home, and uh, then it just the cartoons go to the syndicate for wider distribution after uh, the four hours availability of counterpoint. And that's sort of a it's a standard sort of business model for a relationship for editorial cartoonists 
as you know, other cartoons can have you know different wrinkles to their syndicate deals, but that's generally the way it works. And Cagle has been really good to me over the years, and it's you know a whole uh, it's got a whole lot of subscribers to it. So I, you know, it's always fun being able to see my cartoons and other publications and you know have fa- friends or family members go some come back from vacation someplace and say oh we saw your cartoon in this paper or saw it in this magazine uh-huh you know, you know the, the whole the, the whole the whole point of getting into journalism you know, is because you want to communicate with people right and as an editorial cartoonist you want your cartoons to be seen by as many people as possible so uh syndications you know, really goes to that getting your message out to as many people as possible yeah well and actually maybe that's a another question for both of you is how did you guys get into cartooning nate you want to go first you want me to go? i'll go I'll no go you ahead. go ahead so i i've been drawing all my life i was the youngest of 11 kids seven six six blood siblings and then four step siblings but they the step siblings joined the family when i was about five so they're they're like brothers and sisters but i think being the youngest of 11 i just felt like I had to do something different and uh, my mother was an artist and I think I was inspired by that my my father was a scientist biochemist and somehow there was always been this kind of even balance between left and right brain with me I'm analytical but also creative and I've been drawing all my life but then you know I was interested in doing comics and then looking through the paper to get to the comics I stumbled across the editorial cartoons in the paper one day and I'm like this is amazing beautifully drawn cartoons that get across an opinion and ridicule our, uh, our our politicians. This is pretty pretty cool. And I started doing it my freshman year in high school and never stopped. Did it for my college paper and landed the job out of college. And I've, I've been lucky enough to, to do it professionally my whole career until two years ago. <laughs> so I've, uh, I've, I've done nothing else pretty much my whole life. Okay. And Nate? Yeah, I have a similar sort of backstory as well. So I was big into, I was really into comic strips and comic books when I was in elementary school and middle school. I, so I wanted to be a comic book artist, like a comic book penciler. That's what I thought I wanted to be in seventh grade. And I, I think I drew my first cartoon, uh, editorial cartoon in fifth grade for a school project. And it was Saddam Hussein cartoon during the Persian Gulf War. And I came back to that, I guess, in high school when I was in detention for drawing on desks in school. And the high school newspaper advisor saw me in there and I was doodling in a notebook and she came up to me and said, maybe you could draw some cartoons for us next next year. And so I started drawing editorial cartoons for my school newspaper. And I was attracted to them because it was like, oh, you can do cartoony stuff but it's serious too so people will take you seriously right and so it's it's elevating this low art form and, you know comics as are considered low art right it takes you know especially in comic books it takes an incredible amount of skill and talent to to be able to do it but it's still this low art i, I, I never understood that but yeah it's, you're doing this this fun drawing style in talking about big issues it seemed like this is a really cool thing and then it had this great history you know benjamin franklin being the first american editorial cartoonist and editorial cartoons created the modern image of santa claus and the donkey and the elephant and the political parties you know it's ingrained in the fabric of america and so i was drawn to it because i I could do something silly and serious at the same time 
And so I continued that through high school and college and was able to make a career of it. Uh huh. All right. Well, going back to the idea of having cartoons be as inoffensive as possible, is that like, I, I'm just thinking, seems like every year or so there's always one cartoon that people are just you know oh this this is outrageous this person needs to be fired going back to what you said nate about the power of the image that you don't see that about columns somebody saying this columnist needs to be fired that's that simply just doesn't happen well one of, one of the reasons why i think that happens is because with a column you can couch everything you can give context to everything uh, you have all these words to work with to be able to make something nuanced. And you can have nuances in editorial cartoons, but when it gets down to it, it's a distillation of of a column that's in your own head, obviously. But it's it's distilling all these thoughts and bypassing all of the nuance to get to the final distilled opinion. I also think that because editorial cartoons have to be interpreted, that there is sometimes agendas projected onto a cartoon, pre-existing agendas. So, for instance, the uh, the New York Times controversy. People that are already inclined to be angry at the New York Times and want to discredit them will seize on something like a cartoon to push their agenda and say, this is clearly an int- you know intended to be anti-Semitic or whatever, or, or just poor journalism. And I think you find that with a lot of these cartoons. They may be poorly executed, uh, but oftentimes there's also some projection going on and, or some willful misinterpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I think I think so. Now, I guess one of the other things, and, and you guys have talked about it a little bit, the idea of the popularity of the image in the modern web. In a sense, though, is it possible that editorial cartooning has come has felt pressure not just from above with the with the people writing the checks but also from below in that anybody can make a meme now is that is that you guys think that's that's played a role or not really I, I think it has. Memes are pretty immediate. They uh, they are visual. They work on social media. I mean, they're, they're different in many important respects, but they, they kind of hit the same buttons at times, and they can be out faster than a cartoon because they can be thrown together. And what also, one of the things with memes is people think of them as free and not copyrighted and, and to be used however somebody wants. And cartoonists, social media is a double-edged sword for us. It is a great way to get your message out cartoons can go viral they're copied and pasted all over and that's also what makes it very difficult to monetize them today because seeing one of my cartoons go viral is, is always a little bittersweet because it's like oh god there's <laughs> i'm not getting a dime from this or even a penny but facebook is or twitter or whatever and if you i used to try to because i was trying to drive traffic to my newspaper's website, I would reach out to people who were doing it habitually, and I would ask them to stop, and they'd say, oh, I'm free to use memes. I'm, tr- I'm giving your memes some exposure. <laughs> it was like a double insult. They're calling my cartoon a meme, <laughs> and they're using it, and they're violating the copyright, and they don't care. So anyway, Nate, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I'm in complete agreement on that. There's, we get nothing from going viral, and it's because of that history now with memes that everything is free and yeah uh you know it's the same thing with writers though i would say you know, because you know people are sharing news stories yes now, now newspapers are putting up paywalls but you can do clippings from the story you know, take green captures and so forth and put those in the tweet 
but the the difference between editorial and cartoon editorial cartoons and memes is huge mm-hmm. because a meme, like Nick said, a meme is something that could be done just really quickly. You know, it's like you take an existing picture, something that's cultural touchstone. Paul Rudd, like, look at us, look at us, right? From the Hot Wings Challenge thing or whatever. You can take something like that that, every, that everybody knows and slap some big white font on it and say something clever, you know, your own hot take. Well, that's all, that's all good. It's quick and it's clever, whatever. But there's something about a drawn and image, a hand-drawn cartoon that I think taps into something incredibly primal to us as a species. We've been drawing on things since we were drawn on cave walls. So you, you look at words, those letters are actually drawings. They come from drawings. And there's just something that taps into a very caveman part of us that makes cartoons even more effective, I think, than memes. More interesting to look at. You can linger on them. You can appreciate the artistry of them as well as the wit of the message and the the issues that they're talking about. So it's got a lot going on in it that you can appreciate beyond you know, 10 seconds of recognition of what it's saying. There's there's also another important distinction. And I'll just say that some of my readers have accused me of being a, a, a caveman uh, as well. But um, the, the memes are, are not signed. You don't know where they came from. There's no transparency. In, in a way, that can be a little insidious. They could be created in a Russian troll farm. You don't know where they came from. And cartoons are signed. You have accountability. And whoever created that meme could have motives other than what they're displaying in the meme. There could be underhanded motives. There could be hidden agendas. And you don't. there's no voice. And one thing I like about following cartoonists is you know you get to know their voice after a while and, and become familiar with it and uh, you either like it or hate it. But I, I do like that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, it does seem like the meme as an art form is becoming more elaborate, especially with the advent of deep fakes and um yeah. you know the, the video meme um so i mean is that is that do you think that cartooning itself might transition in that direction or, or is that already doing that in some people's work i think it's already doing it in some people's work i mean what's what's it's incredibly meta now because you know you have the image of pepe the frog by the alt-right and that's from a cartoon <laughs> and then that has been used also, the alt-right version of Pepe the Frog has been lampooned in editorial cartoons after the fact. And it's just, it's incredibly meta how that went about. But, um, you know, there's stuff that means, there's memes out there that are being incorporated into cartoons and referenced all the time. You know, another example is, I forget the cartoonist's name who, who, who did the image, but the dog in the burning room, this is fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a trope that's used in cartoons a lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. I guess one other sort of internet-related controversy. Did, did, did you guys, have you ever paid any attention to the saga of Ben Garrison? Have you guys followed him at all? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you want to talk about that at all? Because I don't know if you know the background of, of the neo-Nazis editing his cartoons. Have you have you heard about that? I don't no. think I've heard that. Oh, okay. Well, but basically, so so Ben Garrison, kind of this kooky Ron Paul type oh, yeah. cartoonist, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, is loves Trump now. But 
earlier in his career, before Trump came along, he used to do a lot of cartoons critical of the Federal Reserve and some of these other organizations that are subject of conspiracy theories. And what what happened is that his work was discovered by people on the website, which doesn't exist anymore, 8chan, the politically incorrect board. And what they did was that they began altering his cartoons to have anti-Semitic imagery in his cartoons. And then, but they kept them signed under his name. And he, he threatened to sue them numerous times for doing that, but they just kept laughing him off and he never sued them. And, and then eventually he, actually started to just accept that they were doing it and ended up advertising on 8chan to his wow. own personal website. It's a very strange story. <laughs> yes. I didn't know the backstory on that. I knew that I've seen his anti-Semitic stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a great, that's a really interesting backstory. Yeah. <laughs> it just show, it shows the opportunism of Trumpism is, is really what it's all about. There, there are all these people out there who are just taking the opportunity to no matter what it, what it is and what comes along with it. If it just means more eyeballs and more support. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think maybe one example of that would be that, you know, in the impeachment hearings that are going on, there's all this constant talk from Trump supporting Republicans on the intelligence committee that oh well all this information is secondhand no you don't have direct knowledge of what you're talking about but then at the same time they also block all people who yeah. have direct knowledge from testifying right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. and but everybody has direct knowledge now because the transcript's been released <laughs> yeah yeah all right well that will do it for this episode i appreciate my two guests today Nick Anderson, the co-founder of Counterpoint.com, a editorial cartoon website and email newsletter, and Nate Beeler, one of the people who is a, an artist for Counterpoint. Thanks for being with me today, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms. We're on Apple, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the rest.